Good evening. Our pre-Rosh Hashanah share that we have every year, this uh, time of year, just before Rosh Hashanah. Of course, it's in memory of Anne Samson, uh, six years since she passed away. Her memory very much lives on in our community, both in uh, Lee and the children and grandchildren who frequent our shul. And we miss her and we dedicate this to her memory. May we be zorcha to see Trias Hamesim. Why is saying sorry the key to Teshuvah? That's the title of tonight's talk. Has anyone here seen the movie Love Story? Okay, so 1970, you know which movie I'm talking about? It's based on the Eric Siegel novel. Ali McGraw, Narayan O'Neill. Don't Google them, by the way. They don't look as great now as they did then. Uh, anyway, there's a line in the movie, and you know it. You've heard it a hundred times, a thousand times. It's said twice in the movie. became the strap line for the movie. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Um, it's a catchphrase. You, you've heard it said before. Uh, how do you feel about that line? Anyone here have a feeling about that line? From experience, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> now, I, I'm interested, I'm just interested generally in sort of these hippie 1960s um, ideas, ideals, which kind of never worked then, but certainly don't work now. But I, I just want to go through it if I can. Uh, does it mean that people who love each other never have to say they're sorry because lovers never do anything wrong to each other. It can't mean that, right? Um, it's wishful thinking. It's actually, as Hillel would say, fantasy. It's not real. So people do have to say they're sorry. So what does it mean? That saying sorry is unnecessary when two people love each other? That if you do something wrong, you don't have to say you're sorry? That doesn't make any sense either. So what is, what is this line? What does it actually mean? Um, actually, to me, it sounds like someone who's condescending, telling someone else what love means. That's what the line sounds like to me. I'm sorry to be an iconoclast, and I'm sure that will, uh, and if I ever wanted to be the movie critic in the LA Times, that job is done. Um, but frankly, like so much else that emanates from the 1960s, it sounds like someone's idea of a philosophically beautiful definition of love, but when you examine it more closely, you discover it's just a bunch of nonsense. So saying sorry, I think, is crucial. It's a crucial part of social behavior. People do things that hurt other people. It's just natural. It's just what happens. And then when they do that, they regret it. And then they say they're sorry. They love each other. They loved each other before they did something wrong. They loved each other when they did something wrong. They continue to love each other in anticipation of the moment of the apology. They apologize and they continue to love each other afterwards. Love has got nothing to do with it. In fact, I would say that if you love somebody, you're more likely to want to say sorry than if you don't. So it means absolutely nothing. And tonight, I want to look at the role of saying sorry in the context of Teshuvah. That's really what I want to um, examine, explore today with you. 
I think it's a very important topic. A lot of people find it difficult to say sorry. I'd like to talk about when it's appropriate to say sorry, when it's not appropriate, and what saying sorry really entails. That's what I'm going to talk about. We're going to begin. I've got a source sheet here. Hopefully, if you read through it in the next 10 minutes, you can leave because the whole share is on there. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll have to stay for an hour. Okay. So that we're going to begin with a Mishnah. It's in Baba Kama. The Mishnah, um, and it, you can find it uh, on Daf Tzadi base, 92a in Baba Kama. The Mishnah says as follows. Um, you damage someone else's property. I don't know, you smash into someone's car. You, whatever it is, you've damaged somebody, you break someone's window. These things happen. Afal Pishahu, we're talking about the damager, even if the person who caused the damage gives the victim restitution, he pays the cost. How much did the window cost? $112 plus tax. You've paid him the money. You've paid him for any embarrassment that he may have suffered. So whatever that may be, you've paid him that as well. You've given him the restitution he deserves according to the letter of the law. That's what the Mishnah says. Nevertheless, his sin is not forgiven until he has asked the damaged party for forgiveness. Until you have apologized. Interesting. So it's not to do with the damage you've caused. There's something else going here. There's something going on here. There's something else at play. We're going to look at Maimonides because he is always the first stop. He is the person who picks apart the Talmud and puts it back together again. I've got here three separate quotations from Rambam's Mishnah Torah. The first one, yes, sure. It says in the Mishnah that he's paid for his bushat. Yes. So, okay, so the question is, how do you pay for someone's embarrassment? How, it's, it, there is a form of compensation in Jewish law that is, re, that is referenced to bushaf. So, for example, if someone, is, if someone is damaged themselves personally, so they've either broken their leg as a result of something you did, and they have to walk around with a cast for two months, that's embarrassing to them because every time that they walk into a wherever it is, somebody's going to ask them, oh, what happened? You broke your leg, you look like an idiot. That has value in, in compensation terms, and Jewish law takes that into consideration, the punitive damages. So it's a, it's a part of punitive damages. So, I, but I'm now going to look at the Rambam, the Rambam in Hilchus Tshuva. This is in the first um, chapter of Hilchus Tshuva, the very first halacha. He says as follows, V'chein, and similarly, one who wounds his fellow or damages his property, even though he may have paid him, the violator, whoever that person is who's caused the damage, has paid what he owed. Nevertheless, he's not forgiven. Until such time as he has done vidui, we're going to translate that loosely, not a perfect translation, as confession. He has confessed his sin, and we're going to get back to that later. 
and he has resolved never to do it again. Is there any reference here in this first um, quote from the Rambam to saying sorry? No. This vidui that we're talking about is a vidui that you do to God. We stand on, uh, uh, on Yom Kippur and we bend down a little bit, we clench our fist, we say Oshamnu, Bogadnu, Gozalnu. Who are we talking to? Are we talking to the person we stole from? We just said Gozalnu. You're talking to the person you stole from? No, you're talking to God. So this is, this is what we're talking about. You're doing a vidui on Yom Kippur or whenever you do Teshuvah, which confesses the sin. That's the first quotation from the Rambam. The second quotation from the Rambam, I'm going to read the English, you can look at the Hebrew, it's on page one. Repentance and Yom Kippur only provide atonement for transgressions between man and God, such as for someone who ate a prohibited item, ate treif, or he had forbidden relations, an inappropriate, immoral relationship. However, transgressions between man and his fellow, so not a ritual transgression, it's not a ritual avera, this is something what we call in Hebrew, Bein Odom Lechaveroi, such as wounding. You hurt someone, physically cause them a wound. You cursed them, you stole from them, and other similar transgressions. You, that such a person is never forgiven until he pays whoever he's done it to what he owes them. And, and here's the key, key word, Viratsehu, and he appeases him. He must say sorry. Even if he returned the money that he owed, he must appease him and ask him for forgiveness. Even if he only angered him with words. They were in an argument and he called him a terrible name in front of other people, whatever it was. He said something really nasty. He must appease him and embrace him until the victim forgives him. Ad sheyim cholloi. That's the words the Rambam use. Any word here about confession? Nothing. This is not about confession. This is between you and the other guy, whoever that is. You were rude to someone, you hurt someone, you, whatever the case may be, you must apologize. And the person, the key thing here is, they must accept your apology. Let's look at the third quote from the Rambam. This is from the Laws of Bodily Harm and Damages in the, in the fifth chapter. There's no such thing as repentance. You cannot ha have teshuvah. You can't renew your relationship with God, which is what Teshuvah is, until you've apologized and been forgiven. Okay, I'm just going to go here. Even if he offered all the rams of Neviot, he does not receive atonement and his transgression is not forgiven until he asks for appeasement from the victim and the victim forgives him. So you've got three levels here. The first is you've got to confess. Second level, you've got to say sorry. Third level, you've got to say sorry and make sure that the person accepts your apology. So there's three different things that the Rambam is saying. And you see here, it's irrespective of the amount of money that you may have given to that person, I guess, in the attempt to appease him. That's not called appeasement. Paying somebody for something you've done wrong, that's not called appeasement. You've got, there is a human relation element to it. You've got to say sorry. You've got to connect with the other person. You've got to look them in the eye and apologize. Let's look at how this Rambam is interpreted, but first we're going to have two questions. The first question is that in the second and third quotations from the Rambam, I've had three, 
It, the Rambam says that you must ask the victim for forgiveness in order to receive atonement. But as we said already, in the first one, there's no mention of apologizing, asking for forgiveness. The Rambam simply talks about vidui. Why is that? So what's going on here between quote A and quote B and C? That's the first question. The second question is, when Rambam provides examples of interpersonal transgressions that require forgiveness in B, he includes theft as an example, gzela. But in C, he states explicitly that one only needs to be forgiven if one has injured someone, but not if one causes damage to someone else's property. Why is there this discrepancy? So there seems to be a uh, difference in the interpersonal angle of this, how one says sorry in, and in what circumstances one must seek someone else's forgiveness. I have to tell you, the Talmud is going to teach us, we're going to come to it, it's a Gemara in Yuma. The Talmud teaches us the source for saying sorry is Joseph and his brothers. We all know the story of Joseph, right? What happened with Yosef HaTzadik? He was a um, young lad, 17 years old. He got on his brother's nerves. They couldn't stand him. And they got so angry with him that they actually plotted to kill him. And they dumped him into a pit. And due to circumstances that are beyond the scope of this shear, eventually they extracted him out of the pit. He wasn't dead. And they sold him into slavery and he went to Egypt. Years later, they came across a guy who was the uh, uh, vizier or whatever it was, the prime minister of Egypt, and he turned out to be their brother Joseph. And eventually he revealed himself, he brought his father to Egypt, and his father lived for another 17 years. We're now almost 40 years later, after he had been sold into slavery, right? And they take their father, he was 147 years old, he was buried in Eretz Kanaan, in Hebron. And they go there to Hebron, and on their way back, they see something happens. We're going to see in a minute, but they, as a result of what they see, decide that they need to reconcile with Joseph. And if you look at the text in the Torah, you see that never previously had they reconciled with Joseph. He'd reconciled with them. He had said to them, I am Joseph, is my father still alive, etc., etc. They'd never reconciled with him. Let's look at the Psukim. The Psukim say as follows. I'm going to read the English. Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and will avenge all the evil which we did to him. Why did they never say that before? Curious, right? I mean, they, they'd known him now for 17 years since they moved to Egypt, and yet they never said that before. And they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father commanded before he died, saying as follows, this is what you should say to Joseph. We beseech you. Honor is the word in Hebrew. Sonor pesha achecha v'chatosom. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin for the evil that they did to you. And now, and again, the word no, son no lefesha avde Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
And his brothers also went and fell down in front of him, and they said, we are here as your servants. How did Joseph respond to the apology? So this was quite a dramatic scene. I mean, the whole thing between Joseph and his brothers is so dramatic. It's the most dramatic story of the whole Torah. And here we have this final showdown. You thought the showdown was when Joseph revealed himself. No, this is the final showdown. They apologize and they're crying and everybody's crying. What did Joseph say to them? Vayomer alehem Yosef, al Elohimoni? Don't be afraid. Am I instead of God? And as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring to pass a day such as this for the survival of many people. What do you think you did wrong? You didn't actually do anything wrong, because in the end it all turned out for the good. Look at me, I'm the king of Egypt. Look at you guys, you're living in Goshen, you never had it so good. What are you apologizing for? You got the wrong end of the stick. And how does he end? Va'ato al now do not fear, I will sustain you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke to them nicely. This, my friends, is the source of apologizing in the Torah. This is where we have it from. Look what the Gemara says in Yuma. Anybody who wants to apologize to his friend shouldn't apologize more than three times. By the way, this is brought down by the Rambam Lahalocha. If somebody refuses to accept an apology, after three times you're free, you've apologized, they're, they're an action, whatever it is, you don't have to worry about that. How do we know that? Because Yosef, who was being apologized to, he was apologized to three times. There were three uses of the word no in the, in the uh, conversation that he had with his brothers, and therefore we know that you have to apologize three times. My friends, this is one of the strangest Gomorrahs on the face of it, right? Is this an apology? No, it's not really an apology, because Yosef said you didn't need to apologize. When you, when you say sorry to someone, they have to say to you, Thank you for the apology. Actually, I was really, really upset. And now that you've apologized, I feel much better. Is that what Yosef said? No, it's not what he said at all. He said you didn't need to apologize in the first place. So how is this the source for apology? It, it doesn't, no, he doesn't say that you thank you for the apology. He simply says, look, look at the words of the Pasuk. Vayoymer Alehem Yosef, al don't be frightened. Why are you getting so concerned about anything that you've done? Ki atachas Elohim oni. My God, do I know better than God? I'm not God. You did what you did. You wanted to do bad. And it turned out for the good. What are you apologizing for? How is this the source for apologizing in the Torah? This, in Jewish tradition, in Jewish, uh, in our a Jewish system, an halachic system, this is the source for apologies, but it doesn't make any sense. We're going to deal with that. I'm going to address it. Yes. He doesn't use the words you don't have to apologize. He just doesn't accept it as an apology. Can I just say something about Yosef Atzadik? He cries a lot. He's a big crier. 
every, you know, every moment when there's a dramatic scene, he bursts into tears, he weeps. He's a very, very emotional person. Yeah, he, he's con he goes out and cries. He is a very emotional person. Clearly, there's a lot of pent-up emotion over more than 20 years, and he just can't handle situations like this, and he cries. But essentially, what he's saying to his brothers here is, I don't know what you're on about. Because, and by the way, this would explain why he'd never really sought an apology from them. What he really wanted to do was teach them a good lesson. So if, if you've heard my shu'urim, you can, you can listen to them online, about the story about how Yosef HaTzadik revealed himself, really what he wanted to do was teach them a good lesson. You know, you, he, by the way, he keeps his brother, first Shimon and later on Binyamin, and Yehuda steps forward, and gives this long soliloquy as to why it is, it's a terrible thing, we've got an old father and it's going to kill him, etc., etc., etc. And what does Yosef say? Nothing. He listens to him politely for however long it takes Yehuda to say whatever he says. And then he says, and my name is Yosef Oedavinuchai. He never answers Yehuda. Why? Because purpose served. Yosef now has taught them the lesson that they needed to learn. You sold me into slavery. You didn't care about your father. It wasn't a concern for you. Now you want, you're very worried about your father's health. Ah, let me tell you who I am. I'm Yosef. I'm the guy you sold more than 20 years ago. So they've learned their lesson. As far as Yosef is concerned, game over. And now it's 17 years later and they're apologizing. And he looks at them with a kind of glazed expression. What are you apologizing for? This is all in the past. I mean, clearly God wanted all this to happen. So why are you apologizing? He doesn't, there's not the words as they're recorded in the Torah, but that's the sentiment. I mean, what are you talking about? Okay, so Rashi says, I didn't put, bring the Rashi, but Rashi says that Yaakov Avinu never even told them to apologize. So how, why did they quote Yaakov Avinu? It says, for the sake of peace, you're allowed to tell a white lie. They were, afraid they were terrified, not just afraid. They felt that all these years, the only reason why they'd managed to survive was because Yaakov Avinu was alive. Now he's dead. Look at the, it's very important to look at the Gemara. What prompted this? How come they suddenly had this epiphany? So the Gemara says, um, so this is, no, this is Rabbeinu Bachia. Why does it say, in the Pasuk, and you return and make your peace with your father, it could simply have said, why, why does it have this very um, clumsy expression in the Hebrew? This, you can explain it um, in the, uh, the ten brothers and the grievous wrong that they had done to their brother Joseph. The fact is that this is a reference, this whole story is a reference to the ten martyrs that were killed at the time of the second Beit HaMikdash. Who were those ten martyrs? We talk about the Montisha B'Av. One, the most famous one, of course, is Rabbi Akiva. But we talk about the ten martyrs 
on Tisha B'Av, on Yom Kippur, which is coming up, we talk about the 10, the greatest rabbis of the Second Temple period, who were murdered by the Romans in the most gruesome, torturous way. Why were they killed? Because somehow the 10 brothers of Joseph were still guilty 1,500 years later, and they needed penitence that could only be served by the Asura Haruge Malchus. That's what this Rabbeinu Bakhtia is saying. He's taking it from a Chazal. He's, he's summarizing it here. We say it, we say it on Yom Kippur. Actually, in the Piyut on Yom Kippur, we mention this. That there is a connection between the ten brothers of Joseph and the Asura Haruge Malchus, these ten martyrs who were killed at the time of the second base Hamikdash. Yeah, he yeah. says, he says the reason we're killing them is because, because, because uh, that in the pute, in the pute, he's saying, it was, it was, we need to kill, well, it's, uh, that is a fanciful expression of the pute, I'm not sure that that's actually a script of what occurred at the time, but reflecting through the pute on what happened, the Pieton says that this is a result of the um, ten brothers of Joseph. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Because we just said that Yosef said, you didn't do anything wrong. If they didn't do anything wrong, why 1,500 years later do they still need to be punished? What is the punishment for? He said, You didn't do anything wrong. You, you meant it for the bad. Who cares? It all turned out for the good. So 1,500 years later, that grudge is still there? What is going on here? Okay, so we, that, that's a very, very good point, Ruthie, and we're going to get to that, but I want to understand, I want to unpack that. I want to really understand it. Yes? Well, it wasn't even nine, um, because Binyamin also wasn't there. Um, I, and I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that question, but they're all guilty um, simply because he was sold. So the ten brothers, well, I guess it's the ten brothers, including Reuven, because Reuven didn't rescue him, and he had the opportunity to rescue him, and he didn't have the courage to stand up to his brothers. So what he did was, is he changed the circumstances, and then when he came back to rescue him, they'd already sold him into slavery. So he bore some guilt because he was, uh, um, you know, somehow he was involved. But the reason I mentioned Binyamin is, of course, that there was no tribe of Reuven at the time of the second base Hamikdash. It was the tribe of Binyamin, the tribe of Yehuda, and the tribe of Levi. Okay, and we know that those were where the ten martyrs came from. But there seems to be some ying to the yang of what happened at the time of Yosef's sale. And even though they apologized, somehow they didn't do teshuva. That's really the point I'm getting at. No. It sounds like it's prompted by circumstances. Yeah, no, it sounds like it was prompted by circumstances. How was it prompted by circumstances? So I don't know if I, I put it in here. It could be that I didn't include it in the notes. But they came home, on their way home from Canaan, they went to Hebron to bury their father. They're on their way home, 
and they pass by a pit. And Joseph says, oh, I recognize that pit. That's where they stuffed me when they sold me. So you know the Mishnah in Brochus says, when you pass a place where a nace happened, you go to the place and you, bar- you say, Baruch So he went and made a bracha. I'm sure he made it with big kavana. He was shockling. And they watched him say, and suddenly they realized he hadn't forgotten. So as a result of that, that's what the Gemara tells us, as a result of them seeing, seeing him make the bracha at the place where he was stuffed into the pit, they realized that maybe he bore a grudge. So they apologized him. That's what prompted, according to the Gemara, that's what prompted the apology. It had nothing to do with Yaakov Avinu. It certainly had to do with Yaakov Avinu dying, but he had not involved himself. By the way, it's not clear, certainly not clear from any text that we have in the Torah, that Yaakov Avinu ever found out what happened. So there's no conversation between Yosef and Yaakov where he said, they sold me into slavery. I don't know what conversation he had with him. What are you doing in Egypt? I don't know. I ran away. I was a runaway. I don't know what, what the conversation was. It could even be, it's, in other words, it's conceivable that Yaakov Avinu never knew that the brothers had sold him into slavery. Maybe he was kidnapped by slave traders while he was on his way to his brothers and they'd found this coat of many colors which had been bloodied. They'd shown it to him on the basis that they thought he'd been killed. And now he'd reappeared in Egypt. There's no evidence that Yaakov Avinu ever knew that he'd been sold into slavery by his brothers. Yes? So it's more highly likely that Yosef actually wants to not break Yaakov Avinu's heart by saying that. I would think so. I would think, why would he want to break his father's heart? So there's no evidence that he knew. I'm, I want to focus on the apology and on this dissonance between the apology that we've described in the Rambam and in the Mishnah, and the apology that the brothers gave to their brother Joseph, to Joseph, and the fact that 1,500 years later, the sin of selling him into slavery had still not been forgiven, even though they'd apologized, to the extent that 10 martyrs were killed. Okay? That's what I'd like to understand. Let's look at Orachaim. Why was forgiveness unnecessary? Va'atem chashaftem li Elohim choshva letoiva says the Or HaChaim. This is similar to someone who intends to pour someone else a cup of poison. What happens? And instead, he pours him a cup of wine. He's not liable for anything and is free and innocent even by the laws of heaven. You wanted to kill someone. You took the cyanide and you poured it into the glass of wine. But the guy took the wrong glass of wine and he drank it and he didn't die. Are you liable for murder? Well, certainly not according to the court of law, but even according to the laws of heaven, you're not liable for attempted murder. Why? Because the guy never took the wine. So he, he drank a perfectly nice cup of Chardonnay, and the fact that you poured some, uh, some cyanide into another glass of Chardonnay makes no difference whatsoever. So what is the Orachim saying? that even though they had intended for him to be killed or whatever they had intended, by the way, why were they so shocked to discover Joseph in Egypt? They were sure he died. What was the life expectancy of an Egyptian slave? Not long, okay? So once they reached past their prime, that was it. Life over, game over, right? If that's the case... Hmm? 
They never came looking for him. They came for food. They came to Egypt because Jacob said, we have no food. That's what it says in the Posuk. There is food in Egypt. Go and find food in Egypt. They never had in their mind to find Joseph. They never dreamt that the man in front of them was Joseph. They didn't recognize him. So, it, No, no, they split up because they didn't want to be considered spies. One big family all coming in together would be suspicious. So they split up, says the Medrash, into, into different, uh, you know, they went to different entrances, different gates into Egypt so that they wouldn't be considered one group. Let's go back to the Gemara in Nazir. The Gemara in Nazir, Davchof Gimel, the sages taught with regard to a verse discussing vows. It's a very, very interesting Gemara. So you know that according to Jewish law, if a wife married makes a vow, says, I'm never going to eat um, kugel ever again in my life, okay? I can understand that she would make such a vow. She makes the vow, and she doesn't know, but her husband, who has this ability, says that that vow doesn't count. He dismisses the vow. He has that right, he has that power. She has no idea. And the following weekend, she's at a kiddish. <laughs> she sees this fabulous lakshan kugel. Okay? And she sees that it's steaming, it smells fantastic. Oh, I, should give my, I can't eat it. Okay, I'm going to eat the lakshan kugel. What does she think she's doing? She thinks she, that she's going against the vow that she's made. Has she gone against the vow? No, not at all, because the husband had nullified the vow. She eats the lakshan kugel for her. It's the biggest avera she's ever done in her life. And as, actually, she's not done an avera at all. That's what the Gemara is about. The, the, the Posuk says, Isha hafaram v'ashem yislach lo. This refers to a woman whose husband has nullified her vow, but she didn't know. And it teaches us that if she does anything prohibited by the nullified vow, she stills still requires atonement and forgiveness. She's done nothing wrong, but it still says, Vashem Yislach Lo. She still requires to do tshuva. Rabbi Akiva, I left this piece in. Rabbi Akiva used to say, isn't that a terrible thing? He would reach this posuk and he would burst into tears. Also used to weep. Rabbi Akiva used to bu would burst into tears. Why? He'd say, look, a person does navera, but it's not actually navera, and they still have to do tshuva. What about a person who really doesn't have error? How much more so they have to do teshuva? This posuk really bothered him because it demonstrated the depth of, a, of the fact that you can sin against God even when you're not sinning. You still have to do teshuva. This woman who'd gone against her vow but she actually was not bound by this vow nevertheless has to do teshuva how much more so one of us, when we do something which is wrong, how much more so we have to do teshuva. I'm going to quote to you now two very famous Lithuanian rabbinic scholars, okay, from the 19th century. One is Rabbi Shlema Zalman of Vilna, and the other one is Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. I didn't translate Rabbi Shlema Zalman of Vilna. We'll look at, uh, at it together in the Hebrew. Ha'avoynois shnei minim. This is, by the way, a classic piece of rabbinic literature. There are two different types of sin. Some of them are just sins that you do between you and God. I'm going to refer to them as ritual sins. For example, you eat a piece of pork. 
That's not a sin that you've done against someone else. That's a sin between you and God. God said you're not allowed to eat pork, and you ate pork. Okay? That's a sin called ben odom la mokoin. Vamin hasheni averoshen ben odom la chavera. But there's a second type of sin. And that sin is known as ben odom la chavera, a social sin. You've got a ritual sin, and you've got a social sin. What's a social sin? I'm very rude to someone. Or I steal money from someone. Or I hurt someone. It's a ben odom la chavera sin. Okay, those are the two different types. There's a social sin and there's a ritual sin. However, says Rabbi Shlomo Zalman of Vilna, the social sin is also a ritual sin. Because you've both sinned against man and you've sinned against God. Why? Because God told you you're not allowed to steal. Says loy signoiv, you're not allowed to steal. So when you steal, you're harming the person you've stolen from because they now they don't have that money that you've stolen, and you've also done a grievous sin against God, who told you you're not allowed to steal. So it's actually two sins. A social sin is just is sorry, as a ritual sin is one, just between you and God. A social sin is between you and God and between you and man. V'tzarich lisvados alehen. Hashem. And if you want to get, if you want to do teshuva for the sin that you've done against another human being, a social sin, you've also got to confess before God, which is why we say gozalnu on Yom Kippur. We bang, right? We say gozalnu. Who are we talking to when we say gozalnu? We're talking to God. We didn't steal anything from God, but you did a sin of stealing so you say gozalnu, that's a confession to God for a social sin. But it's not good enough just to say gozalnu on Yom Kippur if the money is still in your pocket. Right? Because if you haven't paid the guy back, what use is it to bang on your chest and say gozalnu if the guy is still missing the money that you've stolen from them? So in addition to doing the vidui gozalnu on Yom Kippur, you have to make sure before Yom Kippur that you've given the money back and that you've made up with the guy. And this is what Maimonides is talking about. That he says, In the first peric, in the, remember the quote A that I had on page one, was that you have to say vidui. What's the vidui for? He was talking about stealing and damaging, etc. He never spoke about apologizing, because at that stage he wasn't talking about the social aspect of the social sin. He was talking about the ritual aspect of the social sin. So in quotation number one of the Rambam, what he says is, that you have to say gozalnu on Yom Kippur. I'm just choosing one example. But any example of a social sin requires a ritual confession because you've sinned against God. Right? What is he talking about in the second chapter? He's talking about trying to apologize and make up and reconcile with the person who you have harmed. 
That's not a confession situation. That is a social situation. You need to make up with the guy because you've actually caused him harm. You've got to make sure to apologize. There it doesn't talk about vidui. There's no mention of confession there. There it talks about apologies. Seek forgiveness. Appease your friend. Make sure that you have apologized and that he has forgiven you. And even though, this is the big Chiddush here, you've returned the money. Imagine you, somebody, um, you took their money and they discover it and they knock on your door and they say, excuse me, you took $100 from me. And you say to them, you know what, I did. And you throw the money down on the floor and you slam the door. Have you given them back the money? Do they still... Do they, are they out even one cent? Not one cent. What have you done wrong? Nothing. It says, It says you mustn't steal. You haven't stolen. You gave them back the money. Actually, the act of stealing as a social sin is not just the act of taking the money. It's also the act of offending your fellow man. And it's not enough simply to return the cash. You now have to do something more which is to make sure that that person has forgiven you, not simply because they're out the money, but because they've been hurt, their feelings have been hurt. They have a grudge against you. You must appease that person and make sure that they forgive you. That's why the Rambam doesn't talk about confession. At that stage, we're talking about the um, social element of the social sin, it's all about making up with your friend. Actually, people and people have to get on with each other. And the moment they don't get on, you've got to make the effort that they get on. It doesn't matter. It's not even about the money. Of course you need to pay back the money. But the social element of the social sin is what's causing the problem to God. And you can't do vidui until you've sorted that out. That's the first piece. That's from Rabbi Shlomo Zalman of Vilna. Now we're going to look at Bistral Salantar. Bistral Salantar is the um, founder of the Musser movement. He was a fascinating person. And at some stage in the uh, mid-1800s, he realized that people studied Torah and they were great Talmud scholars, but they actually were not very nice to each other. There's a lot of peer pressure and a lot of disparaging um, feelings towards other Jews. And he instituted Musser as a central plank of study in yeshivot in Europe, mainly Lithuania. And he wrote a lot about this subject, and he had lots of people who were his Talmidim, who were his disciples, who, people who learnt from him, or learnt from people who learnt from him, famously the Slabodki yeshiva, the Navaradik yeshiva. One of the people who was very heavily influenced by Rabbi Yisrael Salanta was the Chofetz Chaim. What did he write? He wrote the book about slander, that you're not allowed to speak Losh and Hora. We're going to see about the Chofetz Chaim in a moment. Rabbi Yisrael Salanta wants to talk about whether or not you are entitled to bear a grudge. So, so far we've only been, talk about, we've only been talking about the sinner. What about the sin-e? Is there such a word? Somebody who's been sinned against. How is that person meant to behave? I'm left out before the Rambam says, that if you apologize many times and the person refuses to accept the apology, just walk away because that person is clearly an action. You don't have to be worried. 
because our duty is, if somebody meaningfully says sorry, you must accept the apology. Don't be nasty. That person clearly feels bad. It's not easy to apologize. If somebody comes to you and says, I'm sorry, say, I forgive you. But here we're going to talk about what, is, what are our rights as somebody who has been sinned against a social sin, what are our rights to bear a grudge? A ter'umet is a grudge that one bears in one's heart regarding interpersonal transgressions, social sins. If a person does something wrong to upset another person, even if he only upset him with words, he must apologize and try to appease him. And as long as he has not appeased him, the victim is allowed to bear a grudge. Part of the process of teshuva is the assumption that a person who has been sinned against is permitted to be angry. Don't think you've done something wrong if you've got a bad feeling towards someone who's done something wrong against you. If the person did, um, if the person did apologize, the victim should not stubbornly refuse to forgive. The same applies if a person violates another person's property indirectly. So there, there's no actual money that's been lost, you know, because you're not, there's money that's been lost, but you're not liable for that financial um, obligation. For example, something is damaged, whatever it is, there was negligence maybe, but you are not, if you go to a court of law and you're sued for the money, you won't be found liable to pay. Nevertheless, you've caused that person, person harm. That person's very upset. It was an accident, but it, you're, that person is very upset with you. They're entitled to be upset. Even though one is exempt from paying for indirect damages and there's no financial claim, the victim may bear a grudge against the violator. However, bearing a grudge against another individual for no legitimate reason is a very grave sin. We're going to bring this all together now as we come towards the end of the shir. You have something to ask? Yes. We hope that we live in a type of society that you could express your feelings towards that person. I'm upset with you for what you've done and I expect you to apologize. Instead of that leading to, to motivate you to exact revenge against the individual. So the type of society that we live in should be a society where revenge isn't a consideration. But that doesn't mean you can't be upset. You're entitled to be upset. If somebody does something wrong to you, you're entitled to be upset. There's nothing wrong with that. So the purpose of saying sorry. Number 10 on page 4. Putting together the ideas of Rabbi Shlomo Zalman of Vilna Rishral Salanta. The purpose of saying sorry is to remove any grudge the victim may have against the person who has done something bad to them. That's why you're saying sorry. As long as the victim continues to bear a grudge against the violator, the violator cannot receive heavenly atonement. That's what Rabbi, um, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman of Vilna said. A person's entitled to be upset, so you have to say sorry. And if you haven't said sorry and the person hasn't forgiven you, then you can't do teshuva to God. But once any bad feeling is removed, the atonement process is identical with that which is required for a ben odom la mokum transgression, a ritual sin. So if the person's not, if let's say you walk up to somebody and you say to them, you know, I offended you the other day, I'm really sorry. And the person says to you, I wasn't offended at all, it was fine. You didn't do anything wrong. So did you need to say sorry? Not really, it was not actually a social sin. 
You didn't do anything wrong to that person. He's not upset with you. But you did do a sin. Why? Because what was your intention? To offend them. So who's the sin against? God. It's a Ben Odom Lamokim sin. It's not a Ben Odom Lachavere sin. But your intention was to offend. Let's say... So, you, so what, does it, what does it mean? Well, how, do, how does that Orachayim make any sense? So it makes sense only that he's talking about the sin between you and the other person. But he's not talking about the sin between you and God. I understand, but the heavenly sin, because there's two sins here. There's a, the sin that you have between you and God is contingent on the sin that you have between you and the other person, according to what we learned from Rishlam Azam of Vilna. But the Arachayim, what he seems to be saying is that if you've done a sin against someone, your intention was to sin. The sin against the other person doesn't count. But he's not saying that the sin against God doesn't count. The sin against the other person vis-a-vis -vis God doesn't count. But it's still a sin. You still, your intention was to cause harm. You still have to do teshuva. Let me look again at the Arachayim. In terms of the social sin, but not the ritual sin. He doesn't have to apologize. He doesn't have to apologize. No, he certainly doesn't have to apologize to the individual. But he, no, it doesn't say he doesn't have to say vidui. But maybe, you know what, you have a kasha on the Rachaim, although I could understand it differently. You have a kasha on the Rachaim. Okay, let's continue. Is it, is it necessary to apologize to someone who doesn't... Now, this is just a side point, but an important point. Somebody does not know... I mean, I'm, I'm talking here through the, through the lens of the Chofetz Chaim. Okay? Chofetz Chaim talks about Loshen horror. You spoke Loshen horror. You said something terrible about somebody. You just would tittle-tattle about somebody else. That person has no idea. What have we just said? You have to say sorry to that person. You've wronged them. So according to the Chovitz Chaim, you now have to go to that person. You have to call them up before Yom Kippur. Hello, hello. What's the problem? I want to say sorry. What did you do? I said terrible things about you. Chovitz Chaim says you have to say sorry to that person. Tell them what you've done. So, so look at this. Bishra Salanta. There's a story, I've recorded the story here in number 12. The Chofetz Chaim came to Rishol Salanta and gave him his Sefer. And Rishol Salanta read through the Sefer in a day or two. And on his next visit, a day or two later, Rishol Salanta says, I've got a question for you. He says, how is it that a person who said Loshanar about someone else and the other person doesn't know about it, according to you, has to say sorry? By the way, he had an auntie, he said, Rabbeinu Yoyna said it. Rishol Salanta, what right have you got? to sin against another person by offending them to tell them that you've said Lashon horror about them. They had no idea. They had absolutely no idea. By the way, the, what you do need to do is tell the people that you said the Lashon horror to that you said something wrong. That you do need to do. But Bishal Salanta says, you can't go to somebody and, you know, I had this once, by the way. Somebody called me up and said to me, you know, I, I did you, I said a terrible thing about you. Do you want to know what it was? I said, actually, I don't. I really don't want to know. What's the difference? Is it going to help me to know? He says, I want to apologize. I said, I forgive you. Big deal. What's the difference? You know, I, I, imagine I would know every bad thing that someone said about me. I'd never know anything else. 
I mean, it's a crazy thing. So the Mistral Salanta said that there's no social sin here between you and that person. You don't have to apologize because they don't even know that they've been wronged. And by telling them that you've done, that you've said that, you're going to offend them more. Why would you want to do that? By the way, you know why you'd want to do that? Because you want to do tshuva. How selfish. I'm going to be more offensive to that person just so that I can go on Yom Kippur and say, Hashem Bogadnu Gozalna. What type of person am I? I'm totally selfish. The Lechem Mishnah on the Rambam says that there's no need to say sorry for inadvertent damage. So imagine you accidentally damage somebody's property. You don't need to say sorry. Why? Because it wasn't your intention. If you went and stole something from someone, you have to pay them back and you have to say sorry. But if you had an accident, a car accident, it's a total accident, and you damage someone else's car, you've paid them back for the damage to their car, your insurance is paid, do you have to say sorry? The Lech Mishnah, by the way, he didn't know anything about cars, but I'm applying it to cars. He said, you don't have to say sorry, because you've not actually harmed that person, you've not done, you, you didn't mean to harm them, so why do you have to say sorry? You only ever have to say sorry if you're intentionally harming someone. That is, that is the basis of saying sorry. So now we come back to our original question. Why did the brothers wait until now? And how is it that this apology is the paradigm for all apologies in halacha? So the Das Zikainin quotes the Chazal that I mentioned earlier. Why didn't they approach Joseph when their father was still alive? They figured it was a bad idea to rekindle the animosity as it had already been forgotten. However, when they were on their way back from burying their father, Joseph passed the pit into which his brothers had thrown him and he made the blessing, Baruch So they said to each other, he still harbors hatred in his heart. Without hesitation, they approached Joseph to seek his forgiveness. Now what happened? What happened between Joseph and his brothers? And here we have the basis for apology in halacha and how it is that you're meant to say sorry and what the dynamics are of an apology. What happened with Joseph? Joseph bore no animosity in his heart. Why? Because he'd made a calculation. Even though they'd intended to harm him, as it turned out, God had meant for this to happen so that he could become the king of Egypt and that he could provide for his family and that he could make sure that his family survived and thrived. Therefore, if, even if he had animosity at some point in the past, he was long over it. It was all fine as far as he was concerned. So the social sin no longer existed. They said three times, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. Stop getting so upset about this. I don't mind. However, as you said earlier, Hatachas Eloikim Oni? Am I in the place of God? You shouldn't be saying sorry to me. You know you need to be saying sorry to? Oshamnu, Bogadnu, Gozalnu, etc., etc. You need to do vidui, as the Rambam said in the first quotation, to God. Don't say sorry to me. I'm, I'm over it. I've got no issue with this. But you've got to say sorry to God. There's no record in the Torah that they ever said sorry to God. Do you know how bad that was? 1,500 years later, the 10 martyrs were killed because the brothers apologized to the wrong person. They apologized to Joseph and they never said vidui to God. In our 
situations, interpersonal relations that we have, we sometimes create this division in our minds that we've done something wrong to someone, we've said sorry, and we're good to go. No, we're not. Doesn't matter if they did forgive us or didn't forgive us. Whatever the case may be, once our process is over with the person that we may have violated, in whatever way, now the process of teshuva can begin. Now we're back to square one that it is a ben odom la mokoim. Once you pay back the money, you've apologized and the person has forgiven you, or has told you, by the way, I never was upset with you, whatever the case may be, now your relationship with God needs to be repaired. The basis of an apology is so that you can reach the, ba the baseline for doing teshuva on Yom Kippur. That is why the Rambam says when it comes to Yomim Noroim, when it comes to this period before Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we must go to all our friends and say, have I harmed you in any way? Have I done anything wrong to you? Are you upset with me? Do you know why? Because by seeking their forgiveness, your prayers on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are meaningful. Otherwise, if you've omitted to seek their forgiveness, if you've not apologized to them, your prayers are meaningless. Because how can you do teshuva to God, as Rabbi Shlomo Zalman of Vilna said, if you haven't sought to have a better relationship with the people around you? A relationship is not just a relationship with God. If you don't know how to relate to fellow man, your relationship with God is faulty. We'll leave it here for now. Thank you so much. Thank you.